This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to a kick-ass vocalist, David Reese. He has an amazing new album out called Cacophony of Souls, and we talk about that in depth. We also revisit his days in Accept, and we talk about all the other bands and projects he's been involved with over the years. Check it out. David, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing today, brother? Greetings, everyone. Doing fine. Greetings from Piacenza, Italy. How's everything Quarantine going? Quarantine madness. <laughs> I was just going to ask how everything's going over there. Uh, you staying uh, safe and healthy? Yeah, so far, so good. Uh, they're talking about maybe lifting the band on the 4th of May, which uh, I don't believe because this will be like the second or third time they've had a band lift, so... I'm not too uh, optimistic about it. I hope, but uh, we'll see. So, but uh, it seems that the illness is starting to die down a little bit. That's definitely good to hear. Well, let's talk about uh, yeah. some uh, positive stuff here, some music. So your new album, okay. Cacophony of Souls, has been released. What do you want to tell everybody about it? Well, it's my actually my third solo album. Um, no, fourth. I've actually decided over the years that uh, being a solo artist is far more productive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more in control of what I want to do, and it just seems to be the, the right course for me to go. I, I recorded the album um, last year, um, beginning in early early 2019, with Andy Susamil and Malta Fredrick Burke at the bassist. Um, and then we did about eight or nine shows and kind of, you know, tried some of the, the tunes out, like Blood in Our Hands and uh, Metal Voice. We tried live, which went over really well. And then uh, we went into vocal production, I think, end of August into about the first uh, 10 days of September. And I was done. So it was released uh, March 13, 2020 on El Porto Records. And uh, it's done really, really well. The media has been fantastic. It's the best, the best press I've ever had in response on an album, to be honest. Yeah, I've been listening to it. I think it sounds killer. I mean, the first point I want to make is your voice uh, is just in top form. Are, are you blessed or what? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I always like to share this. I'm uh, about two years sober. I gave up alcohol. Um, I think that, that's been a, a benefit. Um, also, I've had a lot of vocal training. And, um, you know, a singer's best friend is rest, sleeping. So I try to get about eight hours of sleep, even when touring, if it's possible. Um, take good care of my body. And, and you know, because that instrument is connected. It's not like a guitar, you know, where you just put it on and hopefully your hands are okay. But I'm lucky. Uh, I try to keep take good care of it. I sing uh, pretty much every day to keep the muscle, in, you know, warm. So Awesome. Well, you know... One thing is having a great voice, but you got to have well-written melodic tunes, man. And this this has it. Very heavy and well-written. Uh, a couple of the ones that stood out in my mind were uh, Chasing the Shadows, Blood on Our Hands. Of course, Metal Voice, That's that you mentioned that one. That's, uh, that's awesome. And um, the title track. Just so many cool songs on there, man. Very, very good stuff. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I, I can't take all the credit. Uh, Chasing the Shadows, I... I actually wrote that song with Andy Susamil, our guitar player, about 10 years ago. And uh, we had a real knucklehead record company at the time. It was going to be on the album. It was for um, Universal Language, actually. And they 
put it on the running order, but didn't put it on the CD. I mean, Andy about lost his mind. It was one of the best songs on the album. So when we set the template to work together again and what direction we wanted to go, he brought up, he goes, Hey, we've got to, we've got to re-release chasing the shadows and let's re-record it and modernize it. And then, uh, blood in our hands, uh, we kind of wrote that, like I said earlier, you know, uh, as kind of a test the waters on the new material. Um, cause I had released resilient heart and was still touring that record. Uh, cause the two guitar players quit. And then I, I called Andy back to come work with me and he had finished up the rest of last year's shows. So we tried blood in our hands and then metal voice was, it was kind of a fluke how it happened. You know, we had the riff and the idea and he just said, raise your metal voice. And I said, you know, there's a show called the metal voice. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. And I go, is that what you were thinking? He goes, no, it just came in my head. And then I put the hay part in there. And um, Cacophony of Souls, the, the title track was actually, I wrote that with Martin Frank. I'd written uh, a few other songs with him before that went on Resilient Heart, uh, Karma, Two Coins and a Dead Man, and a song called Heart of Stone. And that song, Cacophony of Souls, I had the riff kind of laid out on demo from him. And I'd written the lyrics while I was in Montana. I have a day job actually, that I have to work to survive. And I was in Montana again working, and uh, the lyrics just kind of set right on top of that track, but they didn't make the cut for Resilient Heart. Number one, it didn't have a solo section, so I handed it over to Andy, and he composed that great guitar uh, solo part. But like you said, the, the album is, is just chock full of melody um, and his great, brilliant guitar playing. I mean, he's... Guitar players, you know, if you, if you listen to Andy, you hear a lot of Schenker, Gary Moore. Uh, but there's one thing that he stands alone. He's got his own technique and his own style. So that we've done probably four or five albums together in the past. So it was just the right thing to do, get back with Andy. He's such a great, talented guy. He produced, mixed, and arranged the record, too, I have to say. I mean, he did an amazing job. One thing that my ears hear a little bit is a as a Judas Priest influence. Uh, do you guys like Priest? I do. I'm a huge fan of Rob Halford. Um, and actually, on the I did the UDO tour last February and March, the Steel Factory tour. And you know, during a lot of those hours of traveling, I had purchased Firepower. And I, what I really liked about that album was it seemed that Judas Priest had kind of gone back to the the basic recipe. Even with the layout, you know, the artwork on the cover reminded me of Screaming Event for Vengeance. Yep. And I spent a lot of time just listening to the album while I was driving with the guys. And then, obviously, opening for Udo, you know, I was playing a lot of my songs from Eat the Heat from Accept that I did. And then the heavier songs from uh, Resilient Heart, like Perfect Apocalypse and Live Before You Die. And I noticed that the audience would really respond to that. And then I would go to the merchandise booth, and a lot of people would ask me, you know, can you get back into this heavier thing? And I'm like, you know what? I better listen to the people. So I kind of just, yeah, um, there's the priest influence, like Blood in Our Hands, uh, Chasing the Shadows. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to admit, I think Rob Halford's probably one of the greatest metal singers that walked the planet. So, yeah, I'm proud to be compared to that. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure, man. Um, so one thing I got to admit is that I've never been a, a huge, huge Accept fan. Now, here's where we could we cut in some booze or something, but I really like Eat the Heat. Um, you got some favorite tracks uh, from your work with them? I do. Um, 
Ecstasy, obviously, was a, yeah. a, a big favorite and great live song. We still play live to this day. Uh, D Train was another of my, is another one of my favorites. And Generation Clash is also a great song live. I mean, you get the audience. They know immediately when the bass kicks in what's going on. Um, they all sing the chorus. Uh, Hellhammer is a personal favorite. Uh, the Ballad Mistreated is... I've tried that live a few times. That, that's a challenging vocal song. It's not easy to play live, so we kind of pulled that out of the set. has a lot of our keyboard arrangements and stuff in it. So, But yeah, I would say those are probably pretty much my favorites from the album. The sad thing about Eat, Eat the Heat is that, you know, I think except we should have changed the name of the band. Mm. I understand the branding thing, but it was such a, a different course of action for the band, changing singers. One thing I will say, though, if you go back in the, in the discography of Accept, leading up to uh, Eat the Heat, you had Russian Roulette and Metal Heart. And if you listen to songs like Aiming High, Screaming for a Love Bite, they were kind of leaning in that commercial vein. So the record company's like, we got to get an American singer. You know, a young guy that can, you know, pull it off stateside because they never really broke in America. And uh, they were always huge over here in Europe. So that was the whole, you know, battle plan and it kind of failed. But when I look back on it, hindsight, it, had we changed the name, maybe the album would have been more successful. I'm not sure. It's tough. You know, you never know. I, I like to play those kind of games, too, especially like on my Twitter page. We'll, we'll, we'll do a lot of what ifs. But we, as we all know, there's there's no going back. Um, but one thing, yeah, you mentioned all the ones that are my favorites. Probably my favorite is Hellhammer. Uh, but I like Stand for What You Are, too. I like. I think that's a really cool track. Yeah, that that's that, that was kind of a one that came in while we were writing the album. And I played, you know, harmonica in the intro of it. And it was basically just a positive message song, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And it was geared towards the American market. But the funny thing about Eat the Heat, it was released in, I think, 88 or 89. You know, a lot of people either loved me or hated me when that album came out. There was no middle. And uh, when I did the UDO tour and other tours prior to that, people come up to me with that vinyl or that cassette or that CD and say, you know, I hated this, but now I have to say it's one of my favorite Accept albums. I love it. Would you sign it for me? And it's for an album to be 30 plus years old and people tell you that, it, it left an impression, you know, and... Not many records do that. I have a few in my life, you know, from when I was a kid that I still listen to. But uh, it's very it's very humbling, you know. I mean, I took a lot of flack for that record. You know, and I was right. fired from the band, and, and, you know, they brought Udo back. And um, it wasn't an easy time in my life. I wouldn't be talking to you if it wasn't for that album. I mean, that, that album right. put me on the map. So we kind of touched on replacing somebody like Udo. Uh, was not an easy task. And then when you saw similar scenarios, uh, so we saw this happen with Motley Crue, Priest, Maiden, did you sympathize with some of those replacement singers in those uh, scenarios? Absolutely. I'm friends with John Karabi. I know, uh, you know, when he joined the band, they gave him a million-dollar check. I mean, he was the new guy, but, you know, they were playing for 3,000 people on that tour, and, and it, was, it did not commercially go over. And, of course... Here, I'll, give, I'll back up a bit. While I was recording Eat the Heat, we were about halfway done with the album vocally, and Dieter Dirks, the producer, was sitting in the big control chair, and he stopped recording, and he looked at me, and he goes, you realize if this album fails, it's your fault and my fault. And as a cocky 28-year-old kid, I said, no, nah, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. <laughs> and he goes, no, if it fails, be prepared. You'll be blamed, and so will I. It's going to be our fault. So what fans tend to do is, you know, you break... 
their thing, you know, that they grew up with, and the change is so drastic. They blame the singer like it's his fault. Now, one thing that has to be made clear is Motley Crue, you know, they hired John Karabi. Um, Iron Maiden, Bruce left, and Blaze was hired by Iron Maiden. They didn't force themselves on the band. They were chosen. So it's basically the band's responsibility. And a lot of bands will run away from that part of their history because they made a mistake, you know, uh, let's say commercially and financially. But yeah, when you're a singer that has to put your feet in those shoes, especially a guy like Udo, you cannot do it. I don't care who's singing for the band now, it's not Udo. And I've toured with Udo and I see him play those classics and I watch the fans, it's, it's their boy, you know? Yeah. It's a very, very difficult thing to do, to replace someone who's been around for years, and especially if they had huge commercial success prior to that. Couple thoughts are running through my head. So one, when we when we talk, we'll just get back to John Karabi and Motley Crue. I think the album that he sings on is looked at almost the same way Eat the Heat is. It was a pretty big commercial flop in nineteen ninety four. But man, that album has also picked up a lot of steam. People regard a lot of people online regard that as the crew's best album now. So it's crazy. Oh, musically it's great. I mean, John, I mean, we were doing shows with the scream when I was in Bangalore Choir. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of gigs we did, I remember I saw Tommy in the audience watching Scream, and uh, then one night we did a gig and Nikki was there. So you kind of started wondering what's going on, you know? And I heard they were following, you know, the Scream around and hanging out with Karabi, and and something was cooking. But yeah, I mean, when an album has legs and continues to walk, you know, it may not hit it right off. I mean, the stuff that Ripper Owens did with Priest, I mean, the same thing. I'm hearing, why don't you add some of those songs to the set, <laughs> yep. you know, with Priest? And Halford's totally for it. I think they actually do a few songs, um, and they have a mutual respect for each other. Halford never badmouthed them. Udo never badmouthed me. Uh, but, you know, the Motley Crue thing's a little bit differently. You know, it's like Karabi, you know, he's, he's struggled through those years, and I, and I feel for the guy. I mean... Yeah. He's a great singer, no, no doubt about it. All right, well, let's play a what if scenario. Let's let's say Eat the Heat album is just as it is, but with Udo singing. Do you think it's really going to have would have been a big album? What do you think would happen? Uh, well, they re-released Ecstasy and Generation Clash with him on it, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't work. Uh, he played Ecstasy live solo. He dropped it from his set, and when I was opening from him <laughs> one night, he actually walked up to me and said. You're playing it wrong. I said, playing what wrong? <laughs> Ecstasy. I said, oh, really? I will come out and show you how to do it. I said, challenge accepted. But he had, at the time, had a really bad infection in his leg, a bone infection. So he was really resting up. I mean, the guy did the tour like a champ. But I was hoping he'd come out and share the stage with me on that tour, but he didn't. His son came out, Sven, and played drums one night in Sweden with that, that song. But I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, I don't think it would have worked. Uh, I, I can't hear Udo sing in Prisoner or um, Stand for What You Are. Right. Um, but I can hear. I can't hear myself singing uh, Russell Sim Wild and you know Fast as a Shark like that guy. He's a German tank. <laughs> <laughs> now, for me, I got into music uh, in 1986. Um, Vince Neil, David Lee Roth, Paul Stanley. Those are the guys that I was getting into musically. You know, when I was coming up. And for me, I didn't get Udo. You know, I didn't get the look, and I didn't get the voice. I have a bigger appreciation for it now. 
But um, is that kind of where the break and his firing came from? Were they looking to try to get that audience? Yeah, they were looking at, you know, like I said, Balls for the Wall did about 400,000 copies, just under gold. And I think uh, Metal Heart did about the same. And the record companies were like, hey, man, you know, we got to start hitting gold here. This is going to be over. You know, we're not interested. We got to break a million seller. In those days, you didn't do a million. You were finished. Uh, so the whole concept was let's get an American guy or an English guy, blonde haired, kind of David Lee Roth front Motley Crue thing, switch gears a little bit, keep the heavy riffs, uh, commercialize it a bit and break that U.S. audience. It failed miserably. Now, what I can tell you why Udo works, Udo is one of them. I asked the manager at the time, why is he so popular? And she looked me in the eyes and said, because he's one of them. He's metal. You know, he's the working class steel factory uh, German guy who walks out and does his thing his way, always done it his way. And he's been loyal to his fans from day one. And he's in Germany, especially they'll when they when they're behind you, they'll they'll die with you. And that's the kind of fan base that Udo has, even in America, that they accept fans are that way. You know, wait a minute, this is too too bizarre. They've, they've gone commercial, they've sold out. And like with Motley Crue, they went from Home Sweet Home and so Dr. Feelgood to uh, Hooligan's Holiday. And of course, at that time, you had the, the grunge movement kicking in. Nobody knew their ass from a hole in the ground where they were going musically, including myself. <laughs> so it was a whole weird thing. And I think what works now for bands like Motley and, and you know, Def Leppard, it's nostalgia. You know, you came up on those songs. When you see Van Halen, you want to hear Panama and Jump. Or, you know, you want to see David Lee Roth do Double Eagles, you know, and kicking off of the drum riser and, and, you know, talking to the crowd. I mean, that magic, it's indelible. It sticks in your soul. You know what I mean? Those were magic times, you know, in my opinion. I mean, I remember those days well. I mean, those unbelievable times for rock and roll. Oh, yeah, man. It'll probably never be replicated. Um, on the tour for Eat the Heat, you guys played with Wasp, right? How'd that go? Yep. Yep. Uh, well, in all honesty, we went out and did about a 31-day club tour as a warm-up. We played every night. And the one thing about Accept, that's a, a working machine. You know, mm -hmm. when I got into rock and roll, we, we played five nights a week, six nights a week, four sets a, show, uh, a night, and, and we did covers and tried to write songs and when I joined Accept, I mean, I was in eight and 10 hour a day rehearsals and we had A, B and C set lists. We didn't have a written out set list. You know, they'd call which set we were going to play and you did it. Uh, it taught me um, the work ethic that the Germans are really good at. Uh, but the album didn't take off as great as we thought it would. You know, we, we, we had a bullet at about 112 in the top 200 and Generation Clash was getting on the hard 30 and with uh, Ricky Rackman and those guys, you know, and MTV and was kind of moving. And then uh, I noticed after the club tour, when we jumped on with Wasp, uh, Metal Church was the opening band. We uh, would go from really large venues in the beginning. Of, we started off in San Antonio at the Sunken Gardens, about 30,000 people. And by the middle of the tour, we were playing for 800 to 1,000. You know, I mean, they, promoters were selling the shows because they weren't selling tickets. Wasp was suffering, except was suffering, and but Metal Church were blowing us out the stage. They had a they had a pretty strong following. They were a new young band, you know, 
Um, but I got fired on that tour. That's when it all came to a head. I mean, in Chicago, that was the end of it for me. So after Accept, you get uh, you start Bang- Bangalore Choir. Uh, it's a pretty cool commercial hard rock album, but at that point it was 92, right? Times were kind of against you, weren't they? Uh, I was 90. Um, 90, okay. I think the Gulf War had just kicked in. We were doing production um, timing, of course. I had momentum. People knew who I was. So I went out to L.A., and I did nine shows in one year. And after those nine shows, I had an offer from every major label. I had signed up with Howard Kaufman, who managed Stevie Nicks and White Snake for management. I had the whole power team behind me, and they brought me to Warner Brothers Giant Record, signed with Warner Brothers. Um, but the, the tide was changing, and uh, we had a hit single with Loaded Gun. Incidentally, anybody who watches that video, that young male actor, that's Jared Leto. That was one of his first actors. Yeah, that's Jared Leto. Watch it again. You'll be shocked. Oh, I'm going to. Um, I I learned that later in life. I had a girlfriend who said, do you realize who that is? And I'm like, no. She goes, that's Jared Leto, the actor. And I looked again. (laughs) I'm like, God. So I went to see 30 Seconds of Mars, and I reminded him of it. He was like, oh, my God. That was one of my first acting jobs. Oh, that's awesome. Long story short, we got... um, we had, I think we were scheduled to go out and do Slip of the Tongue opening for Whitesnake, Ooh, but yeah. with the grunge movement, literally about three months after the album was released, they dropped us. So, I mean, I'm walking around L.A. with, I mean, I'm on top of the world, and then I didn't even know how to get arrested. I mean, it was a really dark time. Yeah, I mean, and I've heard this story from everybody. It's like, you know, everything's going yeah. great, and, and every, you know, we're on top of the world, and then it, everything starts to change. Uh, what did you do during that time frame? You had some other bands, didn't you? Yeah, I, I formed a band with uh, Greg Chase on. I'd actually gone over and rehearsed with Badlands, because Badlands and Bangalore had done some gigs together. And Greg and Ray, the singer, would watch me play. And always compliment me, and we got to be pretty good friends. And I never really got to know Jake. But uh, Ray had left, you know, due to his illness and went back to New York, New Jersey. And uh, Greg called me one day and said, hey, you want to come down and jam with us? I'm like, are you kidding? Right. Sing for Badlands? Of course. <laughs> In those days, I could, I could do that stuff pretty easy. High Wire and those tunes. And, and went down and jammed with them, and um, nothing ever came into fruition, really. So after that... Greg said, let's, let's, let's do something. So I formed a band called Circle of Silence with him. And I was pretty good friends with Steve Plunkett from Autograph because he had written uh, Angel in Black for the uh, Bangalore Choir album. So I went over to Steve's and wrote a bunch of songs with him, and Greg contributed, and we did the first Circle of Silence album, incidentally, which will be released on Rocks Records again, limited vinyl. It's out right now, actually. That one and the second one, Suicide Candyman. I did that those two albums. And then, you know, just to be honest, I grew completely, what the word is, confused about what I wanted to do. We had the LA riots, the Northridge earthquake, the Malibu fires, you know, grunge. I just packed up my car. I played the Roxy on the New Year's Eve of 1994, going right into 95. And that was my last gig. And I drove to Tennessee and I bought a farm and I retired. Wow. Nine years. I walked away. Had enough. I'd had enough of California. I've had enough about music. I, you know, I didn't know my identity as a singer. You know, I went from the top of the world with except in Bangalore to, you know, begging for shows. And I just didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel unless it was a train. So 
So I just said, I can't do this anymore. It's time for me to hang my hat up. Definitely. Well, thank God it kind of came back around a little bit and, and everybody can still play and, and put music out because obviously yeah. the fans, the fans still want it. Uh, I mean, I'm always hoping for this new generation of hard rock and heavy metal. Hopefully we'll get it, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to hang on and see what happens. Well, I think, you know, one good thing about the quarantine is music, I mean, if you think about the 60s, what was going on then? Vietnam. Oof, crazy. A, a total... revolution inside the United States, a lot of music was kind of keeping people together. Um, In Europe, we had the festivals, which of course are now on hold, but there's a great movement of music in Europe. I don't know what America's like anymore. I haven't lived there since 2014, but I know it's tough. But streaming has helped a little bit, you know, because people can't get out to purchase physical uh, in the stores, but they can get it by post. Incidentally, I can't even mail my merchandise from home because our post system is closed now. Mm. But I was lucky enough with this album and Resilient Heart to um, kind of solidify myself where people are going, wow, David Reese can still sing. He's got great, great songs. And, and I'm really lucky that way. And then my label, Alberto, did an amazing job of promoting this album. I mean, it's been fantastic with Dustin Hardman and all those guys working behind it. I, I'm completely satisfied, you know, and I'm, I'm blessed to still have eat the heat fans. You know, they right. write me nearly every day, new faces, new friends. I've got eat the heat, taking a photo with it or, or bringing it to shows. Bangalore choir is going to get re-released on vinyl shortly. Again, a limited run. Um, and my back catalog. I mean, it's, so it's, I did something right. You know, I never quit. I, well, I quit for about nine years, and then I got back in music in 2006 or seven. and I said to myself, I'm going to give it five years, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to quit. And literally, at the end of the fifth year, I got a call to go work with Hans Ziller in Bonfire. It was the weirdest thing. I was about to hang it up. <laughs> and uh, now I'm, I'm doing my thing, and, and uh, I'm, I'm happy. And I'm happy there's guys like you out there that are promoting rock and roll, trying to keep the... Keep it alive because I don't think it's there's going to be two ways this goes it's either going to end the world that we knew or it's going to open up new doors and people are going to feel so good again that music will be re-inspired you know yeah I definitely hope it's the latter <laughs> you talked about bonfire I, um, uh, what was that like uh, being with those guys and a very unpleasant experience was and, it? and I, I would <laughs> wouldn't really want to elaborate on it. I, uh, it was a lot of conflict. Um, you know, I, and that goes back to replacing a singer. You right. know, Klaus Lessman is the voice of the bonfire. And, uh, you know, Hans wanted to keep going and keep it moving. So, you know, we had done a kind of a thing called Easy Living for a while before that. And, and it, we, we got along pretty good in those days. And, and he said, well, I'm going to buy the name Bonfire. Klaus is going to retire. And would you be the singer? I said, okay. But things soon went south because of bad management and uh, a lot of the same old story, rock and roll stories. Right. Um, wasn't a very pleasant time for me, and uh, I actually regret it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I did I one mean, great album. I did Glorious, and that's mm-hmm. one of the best-selling records they've done in years. So I'm proud of that. That album came out when Coverdale was doing the Purple album, and I remember watching the charts, and we were right behind them. We sold five, six thousand copies in Europe, and that for nowadays that's pretty good. 
Yeah, uh, so, actually, that, that album does sound really good. I was scanning that before our interview. A lot of uh, us in America remember Bonfire uh, from, they did uh, the Shocker soundtrack, uh, Sword in the Stone, Paul Stanley pen track. You must have played that live with those guys, right? Oh, yeah. Every night. <laughs> you know, I mean, you put an album out called Glorious, and you've got Remember and songs like that, um, you know, and... You look at uh, YouTube and there's 250,000 views. The song did something. I mean, we did a lot of gigs. I mean, I got first year I played with them. I think we did 180 shows that year, and the next year was about 100. So, you know, we worked. We, we played a lot of gigs, a lot of festivals, you know. Isn't it amazing, though? You touched on something um, about somebody, bought, you know, the guitar, I think it was a guitarist that bought the name Bonfire. All these bands are like a brand, and everybody wants to hang on to that brand. That's why you see two versions of Great White and two versions of L.A. Guns and, and uh, we, we, you know, this version of this band or whatever, because these brands still sell and can still get festival gigs. I mean, it's it's still, there's still money there. That's exactly why. Any... And it's sad because there's a lot of great new young bands. They don't have that name from 1985 or 88 um, that really deserve the attention. There's some amazing young bands. There's a band called Animal Drive with Dino singing. You know, mm-hmm. he's done work with Lynch. He, probably one of the greatest young rock singers coming out. You know, you've got uh, Shine Down, which is a favorite in the house here with my wife. Uh, uh, you've got Hailstorm, bands like that. They kind of have a name, but they haven't really broke because people hold on to the nostalgia. Like, except I think that Wolf is the only surviving member now in the band. It's the brand of the name. Bonfire still gets dates because of the name uh, when it's really not even Bonfire. I think there's been over 30 people that have been through that band. Right. Um, branding, you know, I mean, Judas Priest, those bands, you know, like you said earlier, those that magical time of 85, 86, 87, um, that stays with people. It's indelible, you know. There's one new band. You'll have to, maybe you've heard of them, but you have to check them out. Uh, they're called Salem's Lot. You ever heard of those guys? Yep. Okay. The, uh-huh. His voice reminds me of a cross between yours and Blackie Lawless. And that was a band where, really? like, I, you know, I kind of heard something, so I kept sticking with it and listening, and I really got into them. And it's sad because I'd say in the past six months or so, everything's social media is dead. There's no posts, nothing's going on. So it's like, you know, did they give up? I mean, is that what happens to a lot of these bands? It's it's unfortunate because there's a lot of great bands out there. I'm telling you that, like I said, that another thing too with music now there's these young bands have really capitalized on social media. And what they do is they'll, they'll book a show and play for free or the door. And the club owner will say to you, well, can you guarantee 300 people? And you can't say yes. And then you'll say, well, I got this band out of blah, 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 Germany that will play here once a month, bring 250 of their friends, play for free and just buy 10,000 euros with a beer and go completely ape shit. And, uh, you know, and they're great, you know, uh, so it, it, it's just the, the pie has grown s- smaller. Right. Uh, people are vying for the same dates. If you're not filling rooms, you're not getting booked. But there's a lot of bands that are young that are going, listen, they're not going to pay us. We're going to play for free. We're going to be a band. And that's kind of a good thing. Like the old days, mm-hmm. the hunger's back, you know, I mean, 
but there are really great bands that just go, you know what? I got a wife and kid at home. I've got a day job. I, I can't go to Europe for 10 days and play for free and pay for everything on my own. Mm-hmm. The visas, you know, the hotels. And they just go, you know, what are we doing? Nobody's buying our CD off online. So we go to a show, we sell 10 CDs in five shows. I mean, it's really tough, really tough. And if you're in it for the money now, you're wasting your time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I have a, I have a day job, and I'm a, I'm a, a construction guy, and, and I do some farming, and uh, I do it because I love it. I'm lucky to have a fan base, but uh, without that backbone to keep me alive, I don't know how I would survive it. Yeah, same here. I mean, I just do the podcasting and all the Twitter stuff just just as a hobby, just for fun. You know, I have a, a regular job as well. And uh, but you know, like like you said, if we don't, if you're not out there making music, people aren't, aren't out there promoting it. It is going to crash. You know what I mean? So we've got to try to keep this thing going. Exactly, and I and I'm really opposed to these bands. I've seen some bands now trying to, you know, ask for donations because they lost shows. I mean, who do they think they are? The only bands who lost tours this year, right? I lost 30 plus shows, good shows, but, uh, you know, you got to use your head, you know, and, and not sell everything off and, and kind of plan because music is a liquid thing. Um, it's like the economy. Um, if people have disposable income and I'll go back to this, I have a mountain of merchandise from the cacophony of souls tour. I'm not promoting it because I know it wouldn't be right for me to try to profit over people sitting at home because they've got nothing to do and try to make money. I'm going to wait this thing out. And I see other bands that are kind of milking it. And I, and I think that's wrong. I, I, I don't think that's a healthy thing for the fans, especially the fans that have got no jobs and got kids to feed at home who have supported you for the last 20 years. And you're out there trying to, oh, we lost our tour and, we're not going to make it. Well, you know, you ever use your hands, do a day job. You're smart enough to build a band and, and survive. Go get a job. And then come back when things change and, and get back, back to work, you know? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. But, There's so many, like right now, I mean, people, a lot of people are out of work. Uh, food is hard to get a hold of in a lot of areas and stuff. Right now, you've just kind of got to buckle down and get in survival mode. And then once this all passes... You know, then the shows will open back up. The merchandise can be sold. I think we, you're right. We just got to kind of let this pass. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I was raised to work and earn what I get. My, I'm grateful for that from my parents. Um, my videos that are done are done by, I have a close-knit family of guys that I work with who are using, you know, my status, so to speak, to promote their artistic uh, ventures and my brother just did this last one. It's a reflection, you know, another life, another time. It's about me and him as little boys, you know, when we were kids and um, very touching video. He did it at home and, and uh, I've got another friend named Randashi who did Metal Voice and some other live videos for me. I got a good crowd of people around me that are, you know, they're pretty much panic stricken. They're sitting at home going, you know, I got all this time on my hands. I'm going to do a video or, you know, I clean the house for the 10th time this week. Uh, <laughs> I can't even I can't even go to the store, right? We can only go as one person, and you right. have to download a piece of paper and fill it out in case you're stopped to tell the police where you're going. Wow! So we can go to the pharmacy or we can go to the grocery store. That's how limited my life is. Okay, Crazy. I can't fly. I can't do anything. And I had a job plan to go back to Montana 
you know, when I started seeing these shows fall off, I thought, well, I'll just go back to Montana and work construction. Well, the oil fields are a big income uh, thing for that state and, of course, ranching. But now the oil fields are closed, so the banks aren't loaning money to these young guys that are roughnecking to buy new homes. So it's killed that. Um, so I'm basically at the mercy of wondering when this thing is going to open up, if it opens up you know, during the summer when it's warm where I can go back to work. Or I have one show that's still alive, and that's December 5th. I've lost everything until December, and that's in Spain. And, you know, that's the 5th of December. Now, Sp- Spain is in a world of shit right now. I mean, it's bad there, the corona. Mm-hmm. So... I'm hoping it, it dies off and we can play the gig. But uh, for 2021, I have no confirmations. I don't know anything. Yeah. Well, David, what do you want to say to your fans that have been following you all these years? The only thing that comes to mind is thank you. you know, let's stay the course together. Um, I'll try to write the best records that I can. I have a great band, you know, Andrea Gianangeli on drums, not the Frederick Burkett on bass. Andrea Susamil. Uh, Andy's got a new solo album coming out, by the way. Uh, he's got a new video out called Burning Man. Check it out on YouTube. Uh, go to David Reese Official on Facebook, davidreeseofficial.info, to kind of keep up on what I'm doing. And if you bought the album, Cacophony of Souls, I love people to send me a message with a photo of them holding it, because I have a section called My Rock and Roll Family, and I post those photos as a thank you. And I just, I, all I can say is thank you. I can't say it enough. And people like you, yeah, thank you very much. Keep the fire burning. Let's let's keep this thing going. And hopefully, I, I got a faith that we'll pull out of this. Definitely, man. Well, hey, great conversation. I really appreciate your time. And I hope you stay well and stay healthy. Same to you, my brother. Thank you very much. That was awesome. David is so cool. Well, let me tell you all the different things we got coming up on the 80s Glam Metal Cast. All the episodes. Next going to be mark evans from heaven's edge derek davis from babylon ad steve blaze from lillian axe and from loudness ingve malmstein and obsession mr mike becerra so i think it's a great idea for you to subscribe because you don't want to miss a thing i hate that song but it just felt appropriate rock on